I'm Jim Cuno, president of the J. Paul Getty Trust. Welcome to Art and Ideas, a podcast in which I speak to artists, conservators, authors, and scholars about their work. One of the things that we both wanted to do was to break down what is uh, still too often this uh, barrier between art and archaeology. In this episode, I speak with Susan Alcock, Jeffrey Spear, and Ken LaPatton about the book Beyond Boundaries. Earlier this year, Getty Publications, the publishing arm of the J. Paul Getty Trust, produced a volume of essays called Beyond Boundaries, Connecting Visual Cultures in the Provinces of Ancient Rome. The book is the result of an international seminar on the arts of Rome's provinces funded by the Getty Foundation and included some 20 contributors from 11 different countries. The goal of the seminar was to consider the artistic remains of the ancient Roman provinces and how they can complicate and contradict our simple understanding of relations between the imperial center, that is, Rome, and the provincial periphery. To help me understand the results of the seminar, I've invited one of its organizers, Susan Alcock, Special Counsel for Institutional Outreach and Professor of Archaeology and Classics at the University of Michigan, as well as Jeffrey Spear, Senior Curator of Antiquities, and Ken LaPatton, Curator of Antiquities at the Getty, to select essays from the book and then lead us through a discussion of the ways that those essays contribute to the book's theme. We spoke with Susan over the phone from her office in Ann Arbor. Sue, good morning. Thank you for joining us, and congratulations on your important co-edited book, Beyond Boundaries. No, thank you, Jim. It's a, it's a pleasure to be participating in this conversation, and uh, I want to say thank you for giving a shout-out to Beyond Boundaries, because it is the product of uh, quite a considerable effort on many parts, and in fact, it's I'd say it's the product of, uh, of a rare combination. Uh, we had uh, a genius, we had <laughs> adequate support, we had enormous talent, and we had a great scholarly need, and they all sort of came together uh, over, actually, of, over the course in uh, academic terms, a very long time, over uh, a more than two-year-long effort. Uh, and the book is the result, but it's the result of, a, of quite a long and interesting process. Well, tell us about the seminar itself and how you and your co-convener, Natalie Campen, conceived of it and then led it through the various places around the world, I take it, to which you took the seminar itself. Well, I guess first and foremost, uh, the Getty was essential to the effort, especially the Connecting Art Histories uh, program through the Getty Foundation. Uh, They are interested, Connecting Art Histories, in locating areas of the world, sort of regions where the study of art history in a sort of a sophisticated um, and comparative sense is perhaps not as developed as it could be. And they were interested in finding individuals who could be parachuted in there and pull people together and sort of be forced, especially junior people, to be forced to confront their assumptions, talk to other people, talk to people they may not uh, normally get a chance to hang out with. And they, uh, the Getty folks had the very great good sense to ask Natalie Campen to uh, spearhead one of these efforts, looking at the Mediterranean and or more generally at the, the arts of the Roman provinces. Um, Natalie was recently retired from uh, from Barnard College. Uh, at the time, she moved back to Rhode Island in perilous proximity to uh, where I was at Brown University at the time, at the Joukowsky Institute for Archaeology. 
And she sort of said, well, would you know, I'm looking at this. What do you think? And we decided, it, you know, we could do it as a team, in part because one of the things that we both wanted to do was to break down what is uh, still too often this uh, barrier between art and archaeology. And Tally was the consummate art historian, and I am certainly not, let's put it that way. I'm, I'm much more of a field archaeologist by training. Uh, so in some ways, just the two of us working together on this project uh, sort of set part of uh, the foundation for what makes it quite innovative and indeed provocative. And, and so it began as a seminar. And did you have any hopes that as, when you began it, that it might become a book? Yeah, it began as a seminar. We put out a call. We got uh, some 20, uh, 20 or so international cast of characters, largely junior faculty, but with some uh, more senior people leavened in. They came from a variety of fields. There were art historians, archaeologists, museum curators, heritage experts. Uh, some of them weren't even, you know, you know, stone Romanists in a way, but people who knew enough about the Roman Empire to have interesting conversations and to, uh, you know, and to ask those kinds of questions that if you just have, you know, the same old, same old usual suspects in a room don't get asked. So the seminar was uh, basically designed to disrupt in every possible way, shape, and form. Uh, these roughly 20-odd, two dozen individuals were taken to uh, Britain for about a two-week period, taken to Greece for a two-week period, and basically uh, small group dynamics. You know, we, you know, we ate, we uh, stayed in the same hotels together, we looked at all sorts of different kinds of pieces of material culture together. Um, we read articles and argued with each other. And the whole point of the exercise was to have enough time to disagree, to put things back together, and to move forward. And how long did the seminar last? Was it extended over different periods of time so that it was more than a year in duration? When you put it all together? It was or? indeed. Uh, in uh, 2011, we uh, went off to Great Britain for about two weeks together. A year later, astonishingly enough, we were able to basically conjoin more or less the same group. And then a year after that, uh, in summer 2013, we got together at the Getty Villa for a final wrap-up. And um, did you communicate say, with each other in between these trips so that your your ideas were um, sort of developing in between the trips and then you'd meet together and discuss the ideas that you'd been uh, exchanging by email? I mean, did you stay in touch over the course of that time? I'd say we've had all sorts of levels of continuing exchange from the get-go right through to now. We have some uh, uh, seminar members who are now currently co-directing fieldwork projects together. Uh, we have uh, Facebook friends. We have really interesting and, you know, and international uh, sort of junior co colleagues to turn to, you know, to network with, to push the boundaries out, as it were. That's another reason why Beyond Boundaries is a sort of a fitting title, uh, I think we all felt that, you know, sitting down in a room to talk about something with people from 11 different countries, and not just countries, but different kinds of, of uh, national training, and to watch the impact of someone who's come up from a fairly traditional, uh, naming no names, naming no institutions, but fairly traditional art historical background, sort of sitting down side by side with a kind of a wild-eyed archaeologist or someone whose main concern is, you know, heritage and conflict zones. Uh, those are conversations you don't often get. 
And and you mentioned Tally Campen and that she was important for the, in the conception of the seminar and its execution. And then we know that she sadly died before the book itself was published and the book is dedicated to her. Tell us about the importance of Tally in this project. Well, I would describe her as the presiding genius. Uh, she was kind of the initial con- connection to, to the Getty. Uh, she had uh, experimented with this kind of um, free-range seminar uh, format before. She'd taken some students of hers from Colombia to Tunisia uh, and had seen, you know, the benefit of what happens when you get people out of the classroom, out of the library, uh, make them stand and look at things together, make them move through space together, make them deal with each other in all sorts of academic and non-academic ways. Uh, As you know, sadly, she uh, became very ill shortly after the project got going. And really, it's a tribute to the contributors, to all the members of the seminar, that uh, they stayed as as focused and as intent on making sure that the best possible product could come out of all this, because it is very much dedicated to Tally Campen. Now, tell us about the essay that you've chosen, why you chose it, and what contributions you think it made to the seminar and makes to the book. I chose uh, Susan Walker's Celtic Design, Roman Subject, A Portrait of Marcus Aurelius from Rural Britain. Uh, And in part, I chose it because uh, this little Marcus Aurelius, uh, uh, old blue eyes, as we called him, became sort of a mascot through the course of the seminar, the whole seminar. Uh, Susan Walker, who is at the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford, was one of the more senior scholars who came along on the trip. She was just absolutely invaluable for, you know, just teaching us how to look very carefully at at objects. And she sort of mentioned along the way something that was very much on her mind uh, through the course of all this was this kind of strange piece. It's a it's a bronze head, uh, copper alloy, I should say, not bronze. She, Susan would be angry with me for that. Uh, he's got very patterned hair. He's got a beard that is kind of two spiral ice cream cones coming out of his chin. Uh, he has this kind of downturned, grumpy cat mouth, and he has amazingly startling bright blue eyes. In fact, he looks so what is, is you know Roman? Not what? What is this thing? That for a long time, people thought, well, maybe it's not real. It's, what is the date know, from? What's the rough it, date of the uh, sculpture? Uh, Susan Walker puts it uh, probably after his the death and deification of Marcus Aurelius in in one eighty uh, is 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 what she thinks. Um, and this thing is not very big. I mean, that's one of the one of the sort of charming things uh, about it. It's about the height of a large Oban coffee cup. So there's you got this little thing that just packs an enormous visual punch, and it's a puzzle, because you, you know if you look at it, you say, okay, it's uh, it looks like a Roman emperor, but man, you know those are kind of scary, bright blue eyes, and you know and and it's it's so stylized. The beard is odd. What size is it? And it comes from England, and it, it just doesn't look like you know you think Roman emperor Marcus Aurelius. I know what that should look like, and he doesn't look just like he should. That is part of the fun of it, and that's part of the point of this particular chapter. Uh, So what Susan does is she talks about old blue eyes, as she calls him in this piece, but she does it by putting him very much in context, or as much context as she can. She talks about uh, the characteristics of Celtic art. You know, it's very colorful, very free-flowing very uh, not into human or animal representation. And she looks at what happens to Celtic art 
through uh, its, you know, its history and usage in, in Roman Britain. And so she's got this, this head, which with the color and the, um, and the, the sort of the free-flowingness of it and the design of it is clearly Celtic-influenced, though it's a head of a Roman emperor. And then she, she puts him into, con- into Marcus into context with other statue heads, but also with jewelry, with cups, uh, various kinds of vessels, uh, including most charmingly what appear to be these uh, tiny little souvenirs that people would take home from Hadrian's Wall. And she basically says, OK, we have this, uh, we have this new sort of representational need, this new artistic need coming into Roman Britain. We have to show the emperor and this is what they do with it. So why was it necessary uh, for this strange new set of uh, formal principles and stylistic qualities to appear? Why was it necessary to even come up with a sculpture of a, of a face like this? Uh, was it because there was new patronage with the Romans residing in, um, in a- ancient Britain? Or, or was it because there was an ambition of these new artists seeing new things brought to uh, ancient Britain from Rome itself to, to do things like the Romans were doing them? Did it, in other words, did it come from the patron or did it come from right. the artist? You know, that is a great question. And I think uh, one of the things that would come out of this particular chapter is that we're not entirely sure. Uh, and in part, we're not entirely sure because we don't know enough about uh, where these things are made or how they were used or in what context. And that's uh Largely because, you know, the examples that we do have, uh, for the most part, don't have any sort of firm archaeological context. You know, if we don't know the local context for these things, it's it's very hard to, uh, you know, to get at any kind of authentic story. Um, now, to be fair, the traditional answer to your question would be, well, because Rome comes in and there's the imperial cult and uh, representations of the emperor are essential, uh, expected. Uh, to in the practice of the imperial cult, and that's 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 all very well and good. I think uh, to a point that's traditional sort of you know, Roman art history. Rome demands, and the provinces react, or the core says, "Do this," and the peripheries, you know, suck it up and do it. Uh, what I think our book and what I think uh, Walker's chapter was trying to do was to uh, complicate that a, a little bit and, and explore more of the assumptions that, you know, why is that the first question we ask? What did Rome want and what did the provinces have to do uh, in response? Now, now, Susan Walker makes a point in her uh, essay that these objects that she's looking at, in her words, demonstrate a continued taste for Celtic design, a taste for curvilinear, non-naturalistic patterns. How can we determine that that's a matter of taste or just a, a matter of inability to do differently? Ah. Uh. <laughs> oh, but they're so pretty. I mean, you know, no. I, mean, it's, I think what Walker would, would say is that local or uh, sort of indigenous tastes and indigenous stylistic choices uh, endure, uh, but that they can be turned and, you know, and moved into the realm of things that are new and are different. Well, let me ask Ken uh, to come in on this, because he's done a lot of work on silver hordes in Gaul, uh, so another province of the Roman Empire, and uh, that work shows a provincial style, of course, but a style uh, of extraordinary achievement, a much higher stylistic and formal level of achievement than one sees in provincial Britain. So is this 
Ken, there's a question. Can, you, can we generalize from one province to another, or the circumstances are just so different in each, difference of patronage, difference of materials, difference of, of talent or something? How do, how, do we, how do we take the case of the Celtic design and then look at Gaul and learn something in the process? I, I think, Jim, we can do both. I think as, and we'll talk about Mladenovic's article, which as Sue says, you know, really addresses these issues of taste and quality head on, and they're fascinating. But uh, what I think Susan Walker is doing is she's looking at, at tradition. And sometimes that has been posed as indigenous identity or resistance. And she doesn't go that far because she doesn't believe the evidence is there. But the tradition of non-figural art was very strong in Britain. And so while something like the head of Marcus Aurelius, of which Susan gives a couple of examples of similar things, but it's, it's almost unique. There are very few pieces of that figural art aren't as accomplished by the standards that we have accepted from the Renaissance, from Rome, of physical verisimilitude, of stylistic perfection, of naturalism. And so you could say, oh, maybe they weren't good enough. But if you look at the decorative arts, the patterned arts that Sue illustrates, the Battersea shield, um, these souvenir bowls with colorful inlays, with spirals, with rectilinear patterns, they're extremely accomplished, but they're practicing a different aesthetic. And so when the locals in Britain were transferring their skills to something figural representative of the emperor in response to Rome, either because the order's coming from the top down or because they want to generate something to, to please the masters. They're not looking at Roman-style portraiture. They're growing it out of their own traditions. So we have these stylized hair patterns, the, what Sue Lovely uh, calls the ice cream cone beards, the colored inlays. So we see an amalgam emerging, a hybrid of local taste, local styles, and local skills with the need to represent something foreign that is being uh, inserted into their world. I, I think the, uh, Susan Walker talks about a database at the British Museum of uh, objects uh, which numbers to something like a thousand. So is it sufficient in your mind, uh, Ken, to allow us to identify local styles within Roman Britain as opposed to just provincial styles, Roman Britain to Imperial Rome? That, that's a great question, Jim, and I'm not sure. One of the things Susan Walker um, uh, bemoans is that this database is a text-only database, and the images aren't yet attached to it. So it gives us the beginnings of approaching this question, but only, I think, by really looking at all of these objects and also plotting their fine spots. Many of them are small and portable. Many of them have been found uh, by amateurs with metal detectors. We don't have their excavated contexts. We don't know their functions. We might, even when we know where they're found, we don't know when they were made, how they were traded. So there's a still a long ways to go to answer these questions. Uh, Jeffrey, what do you think? Um, I think it's a very good topic. I think Susan Walker does make the point, uh, and of course you could go further, that there is this long tradition in Celtic uh, art of metalwork, especially in inlaid metalwork. Um, and 
that this skill, this interest survives through a, probably a very small number of workshops, and then it responds to whatever patronage is there. So the Romans came, well, I need a head of Marcus Aurelius, this is what's created, and it isn't a very good local style, I feel. And she makes the point that this uh, these workshops survive, uh, I think, until early Anglo-Saxon times, the early, beginning of the 7th century, and then your sort of patronage dies out, but it's a very long tradition. So as Sue Alcock, Susan Walker does set the stage for us to consider the relations between the provinces and, and the periphery and the imperial center and all the complexity of the periphery itself, that it's not a single and simple a phenomenon, uh, that there are complexities within it, uh, and that allows us to move on to the other essays we want to talk about. But before we do, is there anything you want to say about this particular essay? Uh, no, except I, I, I did choose it because I thought, uh, apart from uh, Marcus being a, uh, a seminar mascot, I thought that in a very sort of uh, what could be seen as a sort of a very uh, low-key, quiet kind of case study, uh, Susan Walker's essay actually really uh, explodes a, a lot of the things that we wanted exploded. Uh, uh, the idea that, you know, all roads lead to Rome, you know, you must be wanting to copy the center and you got to do it in a particular way. That's that goes out the window here. The idea that art is like statue heads, but things like jewelry are not art and therefore we don't talk to them side by side. She gets rid of that. Um, the very fact that we take for granted that, yeah, you want emperors and gods and they're going to look human. They're going to be uh, recognizable, naturalistic figures. That's the shock of the new to many cultures that get pulled into the Roman sphere. And finally, you know, she just kind of very calmly makes you realize, uh, is your life change, your art changes. Uh, if, if your chariots become demilitarized, uh, the idea of decorating them to be terrifying as they race towards you, that's going to change too. And there's just lots of little uh, light touches throughout the whole essay that uh, I really think form a great foundation to the... Uh, Certainly, uh, the book as a whole, but especially for the two essays we'll talk about next. Great. Okay, Jeffrey, um, you've chosen an essay by Jennifer Gates Foster, which is concerned with the import consumption in the ports of Roman Egypt. Tell us why you chose this essay and what you think that its contributions to the seminar are. Uh, this is a very ambitious essay. It's a little more theoretical than the others, because we're really not talking about art per se. There's not much art found in these sites. She's talking about the the Red Sea ports in, in eastern Egypt of Berenike and Mios Hormos, which were founded in the 3rd century BC under the Greek kings, the Ptolemies. Um, and these have been excavated since, I think, well, the last 20 years or so, and they found very interesting things at these sites. What, what kind of things did they find? Um, well, it's evidence of, of trade, basically. So, And we're trying to tie that a bit to the, the Roman literary references, which say that the Romans were importing huge amounts of especially luxury goods from India and Arabia and everything along the coast there. Um, we we the know that from Africa. Pliny, I think. We know it from Pliny. Yeah. We know it from quite a few uh, other sources as well, which you know you could go into more than, than is in uh, Jennifer Gates Foster's uh, essay. Um, Pliny says there's 550 million sesterces, which is basically five and a half million gold coins flowing to India every year. It's an enormous amount of trade. So uh, she's saying, well, what's happening at this port? This was the main port to the Red Sea. She uses the theory that, this sort of local theory, that the people there are 
their own local organization, and they should, we shouldn't be looking at it from the point of view of what's happening in Rome. Uh, I think she's also saying, too, that uh, rather than looking on relations, what happens in Rome and then what happens at the end of the system of trade yes. routes that leads to India, what happens along the way? And were there distinct cultures along the way so that as things pass through ports, uh, they took on some of the flavor of the port itself. Is that right? Exactly right. Exactly right. And, and the finds from these excavations at Berenike show a huge diversity of cultures there. I think they're... they're uh, Ostraca with graffiti of almost 20 different languages. We, there's evidence for Tamil Brahmi community there who must have been handling the trade that was coming from India. We have uh, some Ethiopian evidence there. We have um, other places in India, coins from India. And she makes a bold statement where she, in, in a pronouncing or just identifying her argument as all provincial Roman material culture is local. Yes, this is the theory. I, 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 I don't know how that's supported in, this, uh, in these excavations. I think she's just trying to concentrate on who are the people here. You know, these are not Romans. These are native Egyptians and foreigners living in the port, and they have their own lives, and they are making use of some of these imports. And some of the excavation material also shows that things from Egypt, certain foods, certain clothes— were being sent there to the local people and did not move on necessarily. Um, I think it's just a view of trying to imagine who are these people living here. She, she raises the um, term entanglement, this kind of a concept for the engagement that occurs in these sites and things. Uh, that seemed to me uh, of, of significance and rich with possibility for interpretation. Can you tell us more about this idea of entanglement? Uh, Yes, I think, it's, again, it's this idea of what do you do with this material? I think the best example she cites is uh, we know that a lot of the trade is for pepper from India. This is very fashionable in Rome and a huge industry. And, of course, it was a huge industry up until modern times coming from India. And they found in the temple of Serapis in the courtyard seven and a half kilos of pepper in a pot. And... I think you're wondering, what is it doing there? Is it some kind of a ritual? Is it some kind of a hoard that was being stored? Or, I think she, her position would be, it's, and correct me if I'm wrong, Sue, I, I think it's that uh, this would be for local use. This would be tapping into this trade for the local people who are using the temple of Serapis in Berenike. Uh, Sue, when she, the evidence she uses for this, of course, is what um, one wouldn't describe as artistic evidence. There are, there are ceramic pots uh, within which there are these spices and so forth, but there isn't much decoration on the pot, so it's pretty hard to make a case for any kind of artistic exchange. Uh, how useful is it or was it in your conversations with her uh, and then in the development of the essay to understand how one can find evidence and persuasive evidence of cultural exchange in materials such as the materials she was looking at. Oh, this is this is uh, fascinating to listen to because, in some ways, I think it sort of profoundly is is one step to the side of of what I think uh, Gates Foster is trying to to say, and and indeed many of the participants in the seminar and in the volume are, and and that is, you know, if you're looking for art. It has to be taken in the entire context of the material culture being used in these local contexts. And if you're talking about cultural exchange or cultural communication, um, 
just looking for decoration on a pot. I'm, I'm oversimplifying here, obviously, for the sake of argument. That's not the only way to 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 see these connections and these and these influences. And in fact, it's kind of the focus on art, if with a capital A, if you will, that uh, that muddies so much of our understanding of 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 Roman provincial material culture because we think it's like okay, this is art that is created here, essentially tapping off what's going on in downtown Rome. And sort of what happens in the middle is is not all that important. So if these pots filled with peppers come by ship from India, from the coast of India or wherever they might come, uh, and uh, they're handed off to a trader in the Red Sea port, and then that trader then puts them in other kinds of pots and takes them off to, to Rome, are we seeing any physical evidence of an exchange of cultural influence other than the food that's associated with hot, spicy peppers? Well, I think what Gates Foster is trying to do, Jim, is to ask a very different question, to stop that process and look at what's going on in the port. Her focus is local. And rather than looking at India and Rome and the transfer of the pepper from India to Rome, to look at what's going on at this one place as a case study for a series of transactions and interactions that are taking place on a smaller scale throughout the empire as people are interacting and negotiating on the site. And what's fascinating about these sites is that they preserve, you know, as Jeffrey said, such rich linguistic evidence. There's also all kinds of imported foodstuffs here on the Egyptian coast, coconuts, rice, mung beans, and other materials. There's Indian courseware, the kind of pottery you'd use for cooking daily use. So it's not about art. It's about people living amongst one another. And this is where the the store of pepper is so interesting because that pepper wasn't traded on. It was deposited there in a temple. And we don't know if that's a temple treasure because the pepper was incredibly valuable or it's something that was less valuable monetarily at this place closer to its source than it would have been in Rome. And it was kind of taken for local use. Gates Foster speculates that it could have been used for sacrifices, for, for, for burning, for local rituals that were a kind of hybrid between the Greco-Roman and the Indians. So what Gates Foster wants us to do is focus on that local in-between. And that's her entanglement, these entangled communities that are dealing with Romans and Roman traditions on the one hand and India on the other and creating something new in that mingling in the middle. So that in some sense then, Jeffrey, the two essays set two different questions with regard to how to consider the materials one's looking at in, uh, in the provinces, one from the point of view of relations with the center and one in terms of relations to the local. Yes, that's exactly right. Uh, Where Susan Walker is very carefully considering the artistic traditions and the relations, I think uh, Gates Forster is really making us focus on what is happening in a local, uh, non-imperial setting. And and I would add what is engendered by this empire-wide trade. Whereas in Britain, there was a long tradition prior and then that continued here at these ports, they were established first under the Ptolemies and then the trade expanded greatly under the Romans to facilitate this trade. So we have the the center and the periphery creating this new small local cultural interaction in the middle. Yeah. 
So, Ken, you've chosen an essay on the creation of a sculptural tradition in the Roman central Balkans, yet another provincial area of the empire. Uh, Tell us why you chose that essay and what contribution you think it makes to our understanding of the art along the borders of the Roman Empire. Well, Jim, I kind of surprised myself by choosing this essay because, as you know, and as you mentioned, my work has been on Greek and Roman luxury goods, the very high end, the beautiful, the rich gold, silver, gems, bronzes, uh, highly accomplished works that are really um, greatly admired. But as the seminar's goal, as Sue said, was to complicate, to contradict, and to disrupt our study— Uh, I was struck by this paper when I first heard an oral version of it at the Getty Villa Seminar in 2013, and then when I read it, because it begins with a debate about the role and function of quality, and a debate that Dragana Mladenovic had with Tali Kampen, whether quality was a factor even to be considered. Issues of quality have often been viewed as, as elitist, exclusionary, and really rejecting a large swath of what we would call either objectively or pejoratively provincial art. And what Dragana Mladenovic does in this essay, which I found so satisfying, is she addresses this head-on really uh, on two levels. One, the theoretical and methodological, why quality matters, not to judge art worthwhile, but to understand it in its historical context. And she's looking specifically at the sculptural production of uh, the province of Moisa Superior, which is modern-day Serbia and northern Bulgaria, where the sculpture is really bad. <laughs> Tell us a little bit before we go farther with the sculpture about the, the, the port or the, the region Moesia. Uh, tell us about about its character its, and its history and its relationship to the Roman center. Well, it's uh, on the shores of the, the Danube uh, in the central Balkans, and it was conquered rather late by the Romans. There were tribes there, and the artistic traditions were aniconic, non-figural, uh, and there wasn't, it wasn't a rich province. And there wasn't a long-standing art tradition. And so one of the things Mladenovic looks at is how to create, especially sculpture, you need a number of things. You need high-quality stone, which really doesn't exist locally. You need long traditions of apprenticeship and training, which can't just be imported overnight. And you need a class of patrons who value these things. And so while some of the naive features of the local production, frontality, linearity, distorted perspective, uh, simple symmetry, uh, these things have been viewed as features of local identity or even resistance to the center, Mladenovic argues quite convincingly, in my view, that these are really the products of inexperienced carvers who haven't yet attained the skills, which take generations of constant iteration and training and masters training apprentices to do these things, to sculpt a human figure realistically in three dimensions. And these skills just didn't arrive and really never arrived to the province. But rather than just leaving this material out of the study because it's not as good as what's done in Rome, Mladenovic explores the implications for the attempts to mimic 
some of the Roman forms. And she talks about in her uh, section headings, which I love, understanding the bad, or why not any better? What is good enough? Getting some of the form, having it recognizable, serving the function, but there wasn't the desire, she argues, to be exactly a verisimilitudinous, to have the wonderful naturalistic flowing draperies, to get that individualism, rather to create something that fit in a slot that answered the need of the local patrons. So she argues that the art is, in a way, balanced between what we saw in the strictly local of Jennifer Gates Foster's essay and the real larger negotiation of, of, of Walker's. Do we know enough about the local culture to, to say that it was resistant to uh, the demands of the, of the imperial center and the Romans who were there, or, or that it simply wasn't capable of doing it? I mean, in the sense that they hadn't got the kind of training that it was needed. Well, this is the, this is the key thesis of, of this essay. Mladenovic says that because these physical features of the objects, which we can or might not want to call artworks because of their poor quality, they have more in common with the work of inexperienced carvers than carvers exerting a local tradition. Because unlike in Britain, where there was a different tradition that was adapted to Rome, here there was almost no tradition and the production is very small. Does that mean then that the local tradition that existed just simply didn't value Bear's Middletude, as you exactly. said? Exactly. And we know any set of sort of the uh, religious practices or the kind of uh, philosophical positions that they took to know that this fit into a worldview of theirs? We, we, we don't, I think. But we have come in the West to accept realistic, figural, portrait-like art as a norm. And we get that from the Greeks and Romans through the Renaissance. But that really isn't the norm in many, many cultures. And especially uh, in the Central Balkans, there was not that tradition. And in the few instances where they're trying to imitate or create something along those lines, they're not achieving the high level of skill because they don't have the experience to do so. Well, well, let me ask it this way to Jeffrey. Uh, uh, I'm the product of a military father. I I know what a military culture is like. Uh, So... so, is this the case that the military culture that was there representing Rome was itself not interested in fine things? That, in other words, they'd be perfectly happy with mediocre things as well because that was part of the hustle and bustle of a military culture. Oh, I, I like that question, but I think I think it's that's not the answer to it. I think Ken is right that we're we're talking about a culture here that does not have this tradition of figural representation. So. When you do see it here, as Mladenovic shows, it's really for the new patrons when they want someone, they want some prestige. And these patrons are Roman patrons or local I think patrons? They're, well, we don't always know. Some of them are Roman. They have Roman names anyway. Uh, but either Roman or local who are affecting Roman tastes, they want to show that they are Roman. So they're using the local artists and coming up with these steely and portraits in sort of a pseudo-Roman style. And they're happy with that. What was that. the Roman culture like there? In other words, when, when, because this is an outpost of the you know, empire. So was it filled with the most 
um, uh, you know, elevated personalities, or was it a, a brutal uh, well, imposition of of a military rule? No, I think there are there are Romans there, and, and going back to the military that you raised, this is on the Danube, so we do have a lot of military officers here. Uh, but I want to make the point about that that the, the other thing we're seeing, and she touches on it here, we do have um, workshops traveling with the emperor or with high military officials making things in this area. And these do tend to be very good quality. Some of the things that Ken has worked on, silver, jewelry, you know, gold that was given to military officers. Uh, we have silver plates stamped with the name of Sirmium in Serbia. And the mints also were traveling. This is generally quite late. This is in the later 3rd and 4th century. And the, and the piece that she... Um, Ladenovich shows at the very end of this essay this remarkable uh, pilaster from the imperial palace at Gamzigrad is in the local style, but the other things from this palace are very good. There's a, a porphyry head of the emperor from the same site, which was clearly an import, but they were bringing things they felt were more appropriate, at least for these higher level officers and even the imperial court. Jeffrey, I'm just so sorry that you weren't with us for the seminar because... We would have had some fantastic uh, arguments about uh, calling something like pseudo-Roman style. <laughs> I, you know, I, I don't think the participants, uh, or most of us anyway in the seminar, can even wrap our heads around what you mean by that. And also there's the, you know, the stuff that's very good. I mean, very, very good in what? sense is, well, is the in, question. Well, in, in Ladenovich's sense, that, that there is a quality of, of art. And if you look at the pilaster with uh, tetrarchic mm -hmm. heads, that's certainly copying something else. I don't know if she'd say that's very good or she'd say that is, that is well-crafted or that is... Well, quality. I mean, it's, 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 it's a slippery vocabulary uh, here is, I guess, I guess what I'm saying. And that's the reason, I think, why the question of quality has been recently you know, pushed aside. And for me, yeah. I thought it was great the way Ladovinovich, you know, comes out at the beginning and at the end saying that quality, which has been the determinating factor for the construction of the art historical canon, is not equal to historical importance. And by looking at these carvings that are, we can call them unskilled, we can call them naive, she calls them bad, um, we can still learn a lot about what's going on in the culture and the interaction, but we have to address why the quality is what it is or isn't. And there are the conscious choices that skilled artists like Picasso, or I think some late antique early Christian carvers make or even early Greek carvers, if they could carve ears on kuroi that look like seashells, it's not because they can't carve a realistic ear, it's because they choose uh -huh. not to. But in this case, Mladenovic argues convincingly that the naivete, the poor quality material, the lack of tradition, the lack of patronage, the lack of masters to teach indicates that these aren't conscious choices, these are attempts to do something Maybe better, or maybe this is just good enough. And the better is, I think, quite traditionally defined as, you know, mimesis, as realism that mimics the world. And that was a very high expectation in Rome. And Ladvinovich's point here is that didn't transfer. 
Maybe some of the forms did of having a stele, having a wreath, having a bust carved on a stele that could be recognizable, but having something individualized and convincingly realistic wasn't a value. And that tells us something about what's going on locally, what was taken on board to satisfy needs of status, prestige, fulfillment in a Roman model, but they didn't take the whole package. And they couldn't create the whole package because they didn't have the skills, so it was good enough. Okay, I'm afraid I'm going to have to bring the conversation to a close, but Sue, I want to ask a last question to you. You know, we've looked Mm -hmm. at these three case studies, uh, Celtic Britain, Red Sea ports, Central Balkans. Uh, They've raised different questions. Uh, We've answered these questions in different ways, even among the few of us here uh, around the table and you in Ann Arbor. Uh, But it has been a a dynamic conversation, I think, Uh, and I wondered if the conversation this morning alone has confirmed your highest hopes for the seminar and the book, um, that perhaps it raises additional questions that you and the other members of the seminar uh, will continue to consider uh, as you discuss among yourselves the role of the center and the periphery in the understanding of Roman art. Uh, How has this conversation sort of met your standards as you anticipated the, the seminar to have an afterlife, what is the afterlife of the seminar and the book? And are you pleased with what you've uh, heard today and uh, what you've been hearing since the book has been published? I think this conversation, and I, and I was I was serious when I said to Jeffrey, you should have been with us because I, I think the conversations, that, uh, the arguments, the what exactly do you mean by that sorts of follow-ups? Um, they started from the day one with the seminar, and they're continuing to run now through this podcast. I think the book will have legs. Uh, I think it has a diversity of case studies, a diversity of methodological and, and theoretical approaches. I, uh, I, I think it will annoy a lot of people, and I think that's just fantastic. So thank you for uh, the leadership you provided, uh, the seminar itself, uh, the leadership you provided, the book and its publication. Thank you for your contributions this morning. And Jeffrey Spear and Ken LePatton here at the Getty, thank you for joining us in what was a lively, lively conversation. Our theme music comes from the Dharma at Big Sur, composed by John Adams for the opening of the Walt Disney Concert Hall in Los Angeles in 2003. It is licensed with permission from Hendon Music. Look for new episodes of Art and Ideas every other Wednesday. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and SoundCloud, or visit getty.edu slash podcasts for more resources. Thanks for listening. Thank you.